I love that you can move them easily. They make my workspaces much more flexible. I like how quiet they are. I can sit inside and feel all calm, but still feel part of what's going on around me. I like what they cost. They're talking about Nook, the award-winning wellness-certified family of pods, booths, and shelters which make a workplace more flexible and more inclusive. Go to nookpod.com to find out more. Welcome back to the Work Bowl podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions, space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, fund manager, developer, property manager, agent or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and this is episode nine of season six, sponsored by TSK. Get ready for a fully loaded episode. As founder of Space as a Service brand Bold, I've been inspired by the WeWork story, the many things they did right and still doing right, and also always keen to learn from their mistakes. So I was delighted when former WeWork exec Phil Kirshner agreed to join me and share the lessons from his part of the WeWork story, as well as how he's helping organizations evolve their workplace strategies in his current role at McKinsey. We talk about what customers liked about WeWork's product, as well as the challenges in delivering the buzz and energy at the enterprise level. Phil says the biggest difference between a hospitality-oriented environment and one that is built as a traditional office is that the social space comes first and you put in an enormous amount of energy into making sure it feels exciting and compelling. An anecdote my office friends will love hearing Phil share is that McKinsey offices are seeing higher demand now, though it's not quite what you might think. This is a great episode ahead for office investors, operators, and customers alike. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or DM me on LinkedIn. Before we kick this enlightening episode off, a shout out to our sponsors. I got to give TSK a shout out for a video I just watched on the brand new 71,000 square foot hybrid workplace they've created for insurance risk and commercial law firm BLM. Pre-pandemic BLM law were already planning on becoming a paper light organization, but the pandemic sped up their digital strategy. This helped them accelerate processes, become more sustainable and allow their team to connect and communicate from anywhere. Imagine that. They wanted to adopt a more flexible approach to work and their workplace. Enter TSK. When you're bringing several sites together, multiple sites together, there's always a risk that, you know, some may feel inclusive, some may feel excluded. But I think what we created was somewhere that they all felt that they could come together and it really did stand out as a BLM home for them. And I think it was really important that we gave them the right settings and the right tools to enable them to encourage that kind of transition that they were going through. The biggest impact for me and the team, I think, is the whole range of different spaces there are to work, different places to work, depending on what it is we're trying to do at the time. I think that's really strong, really powerful and something we simply haven't had before. I highly recommend you watch this video. It shows how TSK helped BLM move away from their traditional style offices and create a more agile and collaborative environment for their 600 plus Manchester, England based team. The video is on the TSK website and we've put a link to it in the show notes below. Over to you, Jeff, let's kick it. Welcome back to the Word Bull Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and today I'm joined by Phil Kirshner, workplace strategy and change leader at McKinsey & Co. Yes, that McKinsey. Phil is a senior expert in the firm's real estate and people and organizational performance practices, as he should be, because he's certainly a workplace expert. You may know him from his former roles as a workplace strategy executive at WeWork, Jones, Lang LaSalle, or Credit Swiss Group. 
Phil has led multiple large-scale workplace transformations using new occupancy and flexible working policies, modern space standards, and advances in mobile technologies to address evolving work and workplace preferences, increase workplace utilization, and improve occupancy expense efficiency. He's developed workplace configuration benchmarks, flexible office and co-working strategies, and remote working policies for a Fortune 500 technology company. He's inspired workplace mobility transformation of a major U.S. state agency and helped them increase their HQ capacity by 30% by introducing new collaboration tools. And he's created an industry-leading smart working program for a global financial services firm that improved employee engagement, reduced voluntary attrition, and increased building capacity for over 15,000 staff in seven countries. Welcome to the Workable Podcast, Phil. Thank you, Caleb. How are you? Oh, fantastic. It's good to reconnect. Phil and I are both alumni of the Real Innovation Academy with Dror and uh, Poleg and Anthony Slumbers. And we had a great time catching up over a pint last month in New York City when I was stateside for the holidays. Sam Gamble met us over there. It was amazing to meet in person. So it was good to reconnect, Phil. Yeah, I love in real life meetups these days, especially with people who are otherwise internet friends. Yes, I know. We, we keep saying the internet friends. <laughs> it was like something from like MySpace days or something. But <laughs> <laughs> well, today you're in the McKinsey office in Manhattan, 60 some odd floors up. Is that right? I am, yeah, staring at the World Trade Center and over all of New Jersey, possibly into Pennsylvania. It's a clear day. We are, we're very fortunate with our view here. I'm in London, so it was not as clear today, but we had some sunny days this week, so can't complain about that. Look, Phil, I just shared your background, and I want to say congrats on the McKinsey role. How's it going there? Really amazing. I'm still honestly in the onboarding period, learning what all the different like role typologies are here and the sheer number of, kind of industries and, and functions that we cover. But I'm having an amazing time. It's been truly eye-opening about the difference of bringing real estate and workplace and expertise and, and thought leadership uh, and provocations to clients who are engaging already about higher level business strategy as opposed to sort of settling and leading with the real estate engagement. Does that make sense? Yeah, being more proactive than reactive is what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Just like bringing real estate to existing more strategic conversations as opposed to fighting to get real estate to the strategy table because of just the nature of us being a management consultancy has been something that I could not have expected how intellectually engaging it is for me and to feel like I have greater impact with clients as a result. Well, I'm excited to dive into that and we'll come back to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But first, I want to maybe start to start off having a general chat on the future of work. And what I'd like to do, if it's okay, I'd like to start with your time at WeWork and really the demand you were seeing during your time there from scale-ups and enterprise. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. So Phil, if you could just sort of share what you were saying. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm so thankful for my time at WeWork and it gave me such different perspectives on the problems corporate real estate leaders of real estate industry generally is thinking about. And uh, I, I'm curious to you know your interest. Like, I always found myself distinguishing stories while at WeWork between the sort of normal member building and experience, the like so-called you know, off-the-shelf product that most of the market saw, and what a lot of our corporate clients were interested in understanding based on what WeWork was exploring, you know, implementing at our own headquarters that more likely than not was incorporated into like bespoke custom or strategic implementations with enterprise clients. Interesting. I imagine there's a massive difference between what the average customer came in and, you know, that member-adjusted EBITDA customer, <laughs> what they saw and what they experienced, you know, booking a membership online versus an enterprise customer with hundreds of people. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. You know, for the community user, the individual, like our small companies, I don't think 
we were discovered per se, but certainly you know brought to the mass market, the idea that it's possible to have a workplace which is both convenient to you in a location you want with a community of people that you like and highly experiential. Stitching together a really engaging experience in the workplace is very difficult. And having uh, an experience forward operator as most, if not all, pure co-working sites, even mom and pop one-off co-working locations, intuitively understand. To stitch all that together is really difficult. And for people who had never experienced it, it was really compelling product to buy. To say, like, I can I can have a workplace that meets my needs across the very wide number of dimensions from getting my individual work done to feeling like I can welcome guests and just generally it's an enjoyable experience to be here. But that was for the people who make the retail decision of this is a service I would like to consume. They walked into the building the first time, they meet the community team, they get to explore the space that they're considering taking if they're taking a dedicated space as opposed to being like a community member. Like they experience the whole thing themselves and make a yes or no decision as we do in any number of other retail contexts in our life. For enterprise members in co-working spaces or flexible office spaces, uh, usually the major differentiator is that the person who occupies the space was not the person who made the decision to have people occupy that space. As is consistent with sort of the traditional office model, someone in corporate real estate says, I'm going to take this building for my London office as opposed to that building for my London office. So the dynamic of who made the decision relative to who's having the experience is a little different. And... Very often there, there could be failures in the expected sort of consumption or the role of that experience to the people who were being moved into the space. The role that that office had like relative to something more traditional and often and unfortunately for enterprise occupiers that were looking to WeWork or any other flexible office provider as just another office and trying to impose their traditional way of thinking about their own office would often like water down the amount of experience that those employees could have. Can we put some context around this? Because I appreciate the distinction between who makes the decision between retail and enterprise and the disconnect between the actual end user, which I would call a customer, right. and the actual person making a decision at the enterprise level. But if we put some context around that, what does that enterprise product look like that you say it got watered down? What was that product? It wasn't what the retail experience was. Yeah, I guess even thinking about this watered down is a funny term because the water flows in two directions. I guess one way, one version, and this may have been a fault for WeWork in early days, in order to achieve such scale and growth and get the level of enterprise buy-in that the early leaders wanted, I felt at least, and I wasn't in sales, there was definitely a message of, we'll do kind of whatever. You as the sort of asset and financially oriented buyer at the corporate are attracted by our flexibility and our locations and our growth not necessarily by community and experience. So you will ask us and we will largely accommodate to customize what we would have done otherwise to make our office feel more like your office, which devalues all the lessons learned from that incredible speed and scale about what the retail customer and broadly the normal average working individual wanted and enjoyed in the office experience. We were constantly iterating and improving on our design and had a huge amount of research and thought put into why things were located or built in certain ways. But if a corporation showed up with decades of corporate design know-how and design guidelines saying all of our offices must look and feel and smell in a certain way, they might have asked we work, like, make your space look and function like mine. 
and my people will walk in and they will go into the box that you have built for me and rarely leave or interact with the rest of the community in the experience. No, that's fascinating. That's one version. And the other would be, if not bespoke, try to take the retail product, l- larger spaces, obviously, right? Room for yeah. 20, 50, 100 people, but still try to slowly disassemble bits of the curated experience and what might feel like a very small decision to the real estate team, like, you know, no, I do not want my individual employees using or engaging with your member application. I think had an outsized impact on their experience. Like, feels like a small change, but it's actually a big change. And I'd say that probably feels like a familiar experience to any landlord developers put out sort of tenant experience applications trying to convince their tenants to get the individual employees to use it. And historically, they've always said no. I think it's a paradigm that hopefully is changing in us in commercial real estate. The end user was an afterthought because the customer was that person that's signing the contract and making right. the decisions. And the trend that we're seeing now in the UK is particularly in the last six or eight months, demand is that the tours that we're doing of our locations, the people coming on the tour and the times they brought their team on the tour or the questions they're asking, being very sensitive to their employees is we used to have questions like price, but now it's more about, which certainly the, the, the numbers have to work, but now it's like, Will my employees like this experience? Will they like this? Will they like that? What do we have for them? Because we need to make sure that we provide an experience that they feel taken care of and they want to come into the office. And so I wonder if like in that example you gave about the enterprise changing the WeWork experience, just taking the flexibility, I wonder if that's going to change. And I'm curious, in your opinion, based on your experience, what do you think worked about that or did it work? And or maybe what didn't work. About sort of allowing that customization? Yeah, because I think there's a, it's a serious issue for large companies. They want to maintain a certain culture and, and their own brand, but they want to have the benefits of a, a flex or you know the service and hospitality in the community that goes along with it. They want the benefits, but they want to maintain their own culture and brand. So clearly there has to be something there that works and maybe there's something that doesn't work. Yeah, maybe I said like the part of the WeWork narrative that is least often talked about now, in hindsight, because the business doesn't exist anymore, not prominently featured in any of the articles, the documentaries, the books, because the interest was so much about Adam and the growth story, was the Powered by We business, which was where my team spent most of our energy and probably led to most of the interesting conversations with external clients. So that was WeWork's you know, can we bring what we have learned from the aggregate of this explosive growth and iterative design and research and what you experience when you come to visit us? Can we bring the best of that to you? And so that was the sort of outsource design, build and operations business, which did have several successful implementations with large companies that invited WeWork to come and do, you know, one or more floors like within a facility that they controlled. And the most common question I ever got asked by executives across the spectrum of corporations who came to visit not just an off-the-shelf retail WeWork, but WeWork's headquarters in particular, was why does it feel this way? What do you mean? Within 10 feet of the elevator, coat in hand, barely having said hello to, you know, whoever was at the front desk, you know, yeah, can, can see the way they came in. They have not set foot barely into the office. And we get a question like, what, you know, it's 10 o'clock on a Tuesday. Why does it 
feel like this? What is this sort of energy and motion that's happening around me? Who are all these people? Was this a shock because of all the buzz or was this a... Yeah, about the buzz and the energy and like why alternative settings were being used the way they were. And, you know, was this work that they were witnessing around them and what anyone who's sort of in a co-working business would think of as like the lounge. They might think of it as normal. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah. And, and, and probably the biggest, this is not a secret, like the biggest difference between a hospitality-oriented environment and one that is built as a traditional office is that the social space comes first. And you put an enormous amount of energy into making sure that social space feels exciting and compelling. Like you can't just build it and leave it empty. Experience is a labor of OPEX, not just CAPEX, right? Yes. It's the experience that's going to get people. Yeah, yeah. There. And right. And so why did it feel this way? I'm like, well, there's those people over there who just smiled at you when you came in. It's the music that you're listening to. Those people over there are controlling and changing during the day. It's maybe the barista who's just behind you. It's the line of people uh, waiting for coffee whose first names I can guarantee you that barista knows all of them. And it's the fact that the workspace in this environment is such uh, reasonably dense, honestly, like it pushes energy sort of to the front of the space. So you feel that right when you come in and you could see executive leadership. Like they're just over there in offices that are pretty transparent. Like Adam was around, like you could see him while you were standing from that same spot. And like all of this has been carefully stitched together along with our obsessive iterative design of things like pantries and sport areas with a very healthy dose also of technologies being applied at different times in that space, cameras, sensors, like you name it, things we were trying and not everything worked, but we're like, all of this is happening around you right in this moment. So for those powered by we clients who when bringing their employees like into a WeWork may have uh, even the same company saying like, I want you to make this feel like my office. When I found that when we went to them, and we're doing spaces within a, an overall context that they controlled. So only people walking around are their employees and guests. They were typically more amenable to listening to the science and the, the research and the know-how to say, you don't have something in your office that feels this way. You believe that in order to attract and retain and engage your employees or curate a particular kind of energy or activity, a sense of urgency around something perhaps, that we know how to move energy through a space in a way that you don't, in particular enabled by our community teams who must be part of this ecosystem if we go down this path with you. Generally, I found that they were more amenable to like taking our advice and using what would be considered, you know, not off the shelf in the sense that this was not a retail product. It had to fit within a corporate context, but going with the base design and sort of flow recommendations that we would bring in as opposed to trying to tear down the design as they might do within a WeWork location. Well, that is really cool. And I think helps me crystallize some of the thoughts that I have, because I believe that the community, the flexibility, the energy, and the hospitality all of that that fits within a WeWork style, or I'm going to say a bold style footprint in a building. And you're saying that you had more success taking that into someone else's footprint versus having them come to yours. Is that right? Did I hear yeah, that? yeah, yeah. And I'd say the, the one other difference, like the Powered by We kind of project, uh, as with any other workplace project, like within a client's own context, at least their own space, is by definition a strategic project. And would come with, and this is the big difference, like my team at WeWork, getting to lead strategic visioning kinds of conversations with the clients about what are you trying to achieve here? What is the role of this place? 
what is that energy? Who is this community that you want here? What is the, the role of this space relative to others in the building? We can have that conversation and create a North Star and facilitate conversations about topics that I think are even more important now, post-pandemic, or so we're sort of in it, but as we come out of the pandemic, around like social cohesion and connection and community, words that they were not used to bringing into these conversations, at least not with that sort of authentically. But so that strategic conversation would happen, we could set the stage. When you put a hundred people into a flexible space, very often the same level of thinking isn't applied. Like this feels temporary and very few clients on a percentage basis wanted to have that kind of conversation in advance of placing some reasonably small population into WeWork or Bowl or any flexible space. They've been conditioned to think that flexible space is for tactical temporary reasons, not a strategic prioritization yep. of the experience of the workplace for their employees. That just sort of proves my point that I was going for, I think, because I believe that historically space as a service has been a layer just a small layer of a building. And I think we should take the five pillars of space as a service that fits within that layer and cast it a customer service net over the whole building. And so in my view, landlords, if they have a whole building that they want to service these enterprise customers and give them the benefits of the space as a service, energy and hospitality, but not feel like they're in a layer, they're, they're actually in their own space. So like, for instance, that's, that enterprise customer can still take their own space, but then that experience gets to be delivered within their own space as well. Does that make sense? I call it a full stack. One of the most difficult things that I find in communicating to employees like up this future workplace is if I, the employer, want to give you, the employee, access to the total workplace ecosystem, I think as, as Cushman and Wakefield called it early in the pandemic, it's not just home, it's not just office, it's like everywhere is your workplace. Yeah. If I want to give you access to that, you have to understand one basic principle, which is really difficult to communicate, especially for corporate facilities teams that are not used to different points of failure along the way. Like the further away you get from the heart of the operation where I control everything, and it could be you leave our floor in the office tower and you go downstairs to the flexible meeting and work and event space, right? It could be that. It could be while in transit from your house to somewhere, you stop into a flexible office or workplace provider for two hours, or while you're in your home, like the further you get away from me, the less and less I control. Unlike purely kind of digital experiences, an app on my phone, I expect that app to work the exact same way anytime I take my phone out of my pocket. But long before I got into workplace, I am actually a technologist by background. I studied computer science and did a lot of robotics at university and had a professor then tell me robotics is a funny thing, going from code that works the same way every time to an object that's moving around in the world. And when it's moving around in the world, stuff happens. Things are not where you think they're going to be, or somebody kicks the robot, right? The employees are now experiencing this with workplace. Mm. My employer tells me I have access to something or they give me a stipend or you can use this, but if it's still within the world of physical workplace, there are dozens of cascading things that can go wrong that are completely out of control for the corporation. Can't control the weather, can't control access to the building or elevators everywhere, right? So how do we deliver that experience and the messaging and the confidence to employees that we're doing this for them, for their choice and autonomy, but to know that we're sort of asking you to be, especially now, patient with 
potential gaps or missteps in the holistic experience because I as the employer don't physically control every space and object you interact with in the course of your day when you're not in the office that I built for you. This is a big topic. And I think there's lots of different rabbit holes we can go down with that topic. We use the term liberated work or work from anywhere or boot with mm -hmm. your feet and hybrid working and all this stuff. But I'm guessing this is an area that you're focused on now in your current role as, quote, workplace strategy and change leader at McKinsey. Before we dive into some of that, can you tell me what does that entail? Sure. So, uh, I'm, I'm what McKinsey calls a senior expert. So I spend my time trying to have broad spectrum impact across client and industry teams, serving in individual projects, but also working to build capabilities and knowledge for the firm, as opposed to having my life revolve around a very small set of clients or industries, which is like the, the traditional, as we call it, like integrative consulting model, more like T-shaped than I-shaped, if that makes sense. And I sit between two of our practice areas. One is a real estate practice, which historically has been an industry vertical. So delivering strategic advice to companies who happen to be in the business of real estate, designing, servicing, operating, investing. And that focus has been shifting also to include the function of real estate. So how do I, as a company that is in any industry, consume real estate and, and deal with the experience of workplace? That was a gap previously for the practice, which is why I think they were interested in me and, and others like me. And then my secondary home is within what's called our people and organizational performance practice. So that traditionally is McKinsey's engagement with human resources leaders on organizational design and agility and leadership training. And that group, similarly, like prior to the pandemic, was not really focused on the impact of physical space. That was not part of the narrative. As that has changed, I was interesting to that group too. So I sort of sit between those two homes, which is really fascinating, getting to focus on the impact that physical space has on sort of leadership and business decisions and the role that organizational and employee behaviors have in turn on how you should be consuming space. This goes back to what I was saying, the trend that we're seeing about people making sure that the experience is going to work for their employees because otherwise they're going to work from home and they want them to come to the office or have the office as a tool to support them. And so I'm curious, considering the two sort of roles, these are not roles, but two camps you're sitting in here, bringing the real estate and the HR conversations to the table. Is it fair to, is it might not be a fair question to ask considering you're relatively new? So I expect some Yes, disclaimers. I am new, only, only six, yeah, six and a bit months or so. <laughs> I expect some disclaimers here, but I'm going to ask anyways. How do you see, or how does McKinsey see the future of the office and real estate in general? And just to clarify, I assume you mean outward well, perspective as opposed to, because there's both. There's, there's what we think and are realizing for our consumption of offices, and then there's the messaging of what we believe. Yeah, I mean, clients. hopefully you guys are authentic and eating your own dog food, so to speak. So I'd be interested maybe first to hear how you're talking to clients of yours, advising them on how they approach their real estate strategy and their, and their people strategy. But yeah, I suppose maybe if you want to touch on what you're doing internally as well, that'd be great. I think I'd love to hear it. Yeah. I, I may just come on a second. Like, and, and with the huge disclaimer, I am not in our corporate real estate group. I do not have any influence on our, <laughs> our corporate real estate decisions, but I, I've been saying for a long time, when any occupier I've ever worked with is looking for examples for inspiration, they maybe look towards the like technology firms because they hear about what like Google, Apple, Facebook has done. And this is years ago, even, oh, look over there, look at the really interesting things coming from that industry. And then often would point to the professional services firms, either the McKinsey's and Accenture's, you know, Deloitte, like anyone or across the like management consultancy space. 
And I was always quick to point out for the management consultants is like, keep in mind, like happy to explore and help you understand like the trends and decisions that I am aware of in that industry. But in a normal week for you, for most knowledge working industries, your employees are in the office most of the time, four or five days a week, whatever it is. Like they come in, that, that is, that's the norm. It's just a pre-pandemic norm. Yes, sorry, pre-pandemic norm. Like normal for you was you're here most of the time and normal for them, pointing at, at McKinsey and other management consultancies is at least for the consultants, normal for them is that they're not actually there. They are usually in an office, but it's not their office. It's more than likely their client's office. So that was the that was sort of the pre-pandemic stage. So while everyone else is adjusting now to, gosh, what is the world like if many of my employees are either never here or here very infrequently, somewhere in the middle, let's say two to three days a week, the management consultancies, McKinsey included, are going the opposite direction. Yes, we have a greater degree of, of sort of flexibility in people working remotely, but also with client perceptions changing about their role of the office, it is creating greater demand on our office than would have been here before. So you're saying because your customers, your clients are out of their office now, whereas before they were in the office all the time. So if they don't have an office anymore, they need to come to yours. Well, no, not that they need to come to us, but that the team of people supporting them that ah, team wants okay. to get together. And you know, we, like anyone else, are challenging the assumptions of like exactly how often and for what moments in a client and project cycle does it make the most sense and the greatest value for members of the same consulting team who may be based in different cities like to be together in person. The answer, if they decide to be together in person, may not now be at the client site. So some of the very logical conclusions is, oh, well, if we can't go there, we'll just go to the McKinsey office. But the McKinsey office, much like the Accenture office or Deloitte office, typically was not built to house everybody at the same time because yep. the center of gravity was elsewhere. So that is the driving force of the reconsideration around our own offices, oh, which is great. Having more teams around that are serving different clients, like, well, how does that change the demand on our space and the curation of the experience like, throughout the week? That makes sense. People around more. So it, funny enough, like there used to be a very big difference between the two industry groups, one in all the time and one out all the time, not at home, but more than likely at a client. Now they're going to converge, I think, over time. We will be in more closer to the middle, whatever it is, two or three days a week, just like the sort of traditional non-consultancy knowledge work companies in the office more to the two or three days a week. So it'd be fascinating to watch if those two standards start to converge where they were very diametrically opposed. Is it safe to then assume that McKinsey, because of how you work pre-pandemic out of your office a lot and the way you use real estate pre-pandemic, if your clients are now moving in that direction that you guys used to be, you guys are great to be able to consult with them and advise them the right way. Yeah, that's a benefit. I used to joke for years that individual consultants at almost any firm, and this is true, I think, for my team, even when I was at JLL, are frequently, you know, could work on a rock if they had to. No one pays more attention to recommendations from internal IT partners about tools and tricks and techniques for being functional while mobile than someone who has to be. And a lot of what is going to enable this sort of hybrid future has a lot to do with individual employee willingness to consider and adopt new practices and technologies and company support of the same thing. I used to see this when I was at Credit Suisse years ago. The most amazing technologies could be rolled out for moving your phone around or accessing something from home or using some kind of like digital screen, you name it. Like it could be rolled out in a normal office and some people would embrace it, but many people wouldn't. But if you looked at the environments that were shared with some kind of free addressing, activity-based working, very co-working inspired principles in the office, 
someone who is moving around during the day or day over day has a significantly higher incentive to you know, learn about all those tools and become as fluent as possible with the resources available to help them be untethered. So consultants, yes, consultants have that almost out of the box. You say, here's a new tool that lets you like connect to any screen or make a phone call in a different country or, or you name it. That comes out of the box. And we are learning and, and advising clients on how to manage distributed teams as a result, especially because consulting teams change project to project. So the half a dozen people I'm working with now in two or three weeks may be a completely different half a dozen people with different experiences and expectations and norms. So we are constantly testing and learning in a way that I think a traditional company doesn't have that muscle. Then I'm going to ask you a punchy question here. I want your top two tips. If a company's listening right now and they're looking at managing space in a different way and managing their people in a different way, what are the top two tips that you would give them right now if they were sitting in front of you? Yeah, the two things I think I find myself saying most frequently, one is to give people freedom and flexibility through space, moving between spaces, whether that's in the office or between locations, their homes, a third place. You have to focus a lot of energy on giving them freedom and flexibility through time. And that's really interrogating and adopting new ways of working led by the more remote friendly companies like GitLab, focusing on deprioritization of sort of synchronous meeting time, higher documentation cultures, making it easier to know how work is supposed to be done, what norms are, uh, individual preferences, and visualizing work processes so that people can engage with their own teams and other teams without having location be a factor. So when you give people freedom through their day to move moments of time and their schedule around, that lets them actually move from place to place, even if it's just within the office, because right now we are so you know overscheduled because of attempting to retain old practices that it is impossible to imagine and embrace this new future. So that's, that's sort of one. And two, I think there is such an obsession on what we need to be telling employees about the future, where and when to be, that there isn't enough focus on the choice architectures that are required to enable that future. So it's a semantic shift, but I think there's a message here to landlords or anyone who's providing space. The, the, the name of the game in the future is learning from past experience of what moments matter most and when being together in real time and possibly also in real place like has a demonstrably positive impact on the work that's getting done. Like when you know that information and all the conditions around an employee on any given day, who's where, what their calendar is like, who they're interacting with, even, you know, what's the weather and what's availability of, of resources and services around them. Can you present them with choices and help encourage them to make the choice that you think will have the best outcome as opposed to trying to direct them to do something specifically, which I think employees will react negatively to over time because we weren't accustomed to that before. I like that because I'm a big fan of empowerment and giving people choice. And you also talk about the office being one of those choices and the different resources within that office or multiple locations to do their best work. So I appreciate, I think it's great advice and we'll put those into value bombs. Selfishly though, I'm going to transition to my last question before the quick fire round. And that is, what should real estate brands like mine, Bold, and other folks in the supply of office real estate, what should we be thinking about how to support customers going forward? My biggest recommendation for people in the flexible space is often around just greater awareness of the fact that corporate employees, despite having more and more flexibility and maybe the access to 
flexible spaces will still be governed by corporate programs and messaging that are not obvious on the surface. Someone who walks in from a corporate client, it's very difficult to know the circumstances by which they came to be there and the rules that they think are in play and their expectations that are being communicated from their leadership. And that's a lot of change management for uh, community and facility, you know, and operations teams and flexible spaces who just have not had that experience with corporate occupancy programs and the kind of directions that those employees may be getting. Thank you. I'm probably going to replay that last 60 or, or 90 seconds about 500 times <laughs> and do a lot of reflecting on that. No, this is, yeah. This is and I, I've written that, I've written about that one in particular, sort of on LinkedIn is something I realized while well, I was at WeWork and, and just after I left it is a real challenge of the gray space between the corporate occupancy program and an off the shelf, so to speak, like workplace experience and what happens in the middle in terms of managing expectations. Of course. And one of the benefits of being a podcast host is you get to get all these nuggets from people and then play them over and over and over again and take it through osmosis and learn. Now, time for the quick fire round, Phil. You know how this goes. You're a podcast listener. So my first question to you, we mixed it up just slightly, but who is your go-to for inspiration? This could be you know, a person, a website, a podcast, anything. I think there's several podcasts that I find myself listening to to try to get out of the just straight real estate space and more into sort of design and work. The top three are probably the distributed from Matt Mullenweg, Brave New Work, I really like from the ready and also 99% visible. I'm not a designer by trade, but being forced to think differently about design and architecture choices out in the world that have nothing to do with workplace is really provocative and inspiring for me. Well, that's cool. I'll have to look that up myself. We'll put uh, links to in the show notes. Okay. So my second question for you, Phil, is if you could wave a magic wand to change anything when it comes to company culture right now, what would that be? <laughs> Realize that it is changing. The question is how much do leaders appreciate it is that employees and workers of all kinds like seem to have the power now and are leading very much with their heart, whereas the corporation wants to lead sort of with its head and put everything on a spreadsheet. McKinsey's own research has found this. There's a huge shift towards just belonging and authenticity and COVID having ripped the Band-Aid on us being authentically ourselves, like seeing the humanity in each other through these last two years, like that can't go away. If that's true, it, it changes every kind of decision in how you communicate with and, and to employees throughout the process for, for workplace or otherwise. We're like, we're all human now. There's no more my home life and my work life. It, it's the same for yeah. me and for you as the executive leader. So that's, that's sort of the future I'm most excited about. I hear you. And I think that in the future, we'll see funky titles come up across these big companies, fast-growing companies, chief of empathy or chief culture officer. We already see that now. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I have a, a lighter question, and this one's you've heard before on the podcast, where is your favorite holiday destination? I was fortunate enough to have a sabbatical while I was working in Credit Suisse and I got to travel through Asia in places that you'd only really want to go to if you've got weeks and weeks of time. And it is the places that I most want to bring my, my wife and eventually my kids. I started New Zealand and Australia, which are about as far as you can get from New York as anywhere else in the world. So I'm dying to be able to go back there and bring you know my family so that they can experience the same thing as I did. Awesome. You're the second person that's mentioned Australia. I'm sure <laughs> our friends who follow the podcast, uh, John Priest and those guys, they'll be uh, chatting. Yeah, the, the so, someone told me a long time ago that the, I think it's called the antipode. Like if you basically stuck your head into the ground in New York City and poked out the exact other side of the world, it's like just off the coast of Perth, oh. <laughs> which is one of the reasons I went to Perth while I was in Australia. So it, it is literally as far as you can get from New York as anywhere else. Where I grew up, we always said, if you keep digging you'll end up in China. That's what <laughs> Yeah. Well, I know, I know now thanks to, you know, Google Maps. It's not, it's not, not China. It's first, Australia. <laughs> well, there you go. 
See, if you don't learn anything on this podcast, you'll learn that. Look, Phil, it's been great, and I look forward to seeing you in person again soon. And we'll have to keep catching up on how things are progressing with McKinsey. Yeah, of course, and, and, and the next, next, next pint in London. Yes, well, you're welcome anytime. Where do you want people to connect with you on social media? I am active on LinkedIn um, and Twitter too, both just at Phil Kirshner. And, you know, looking forward to being able to take some of my thought leadership to like the McKinsey sphere now that I'm getting settled a bit here and sharing articles that way. Well, we'll put links to your social media in the show notes and uh, certainly ping me any articles you have. And I'm glad to read them and share them. Awesome. Thank you so much, Caleb. All right, Phil. uh, Those of you listening today, thank you for tuning in. Until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Drumroll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. Making high-quality podcasts like this takes a lot of work. That's a fact. But not when you hire Copus. With our white glove experience, we handle everything for you, from guest outreach all the way through publishing and promotion. We handle it all. You show up to hold great interviews like these and build relationships with your guests. We take care of everything else. Podcasting is not just about the audience. Every podcast interview is the start of a brand new relationship. With a weekly podcast, you would build relationships with 52 ideal partners or prospects through podcast interviews over the next 12 months. Do you believe 52 new relationships could grow your business? We do. Why not contact me today, jason at copus.com, J-A-S-O-N at K-O-P-U-S dot com. And let's talk. Thank you.